I've taken literally hundreds of courses and this one is hands down the best ones. I cannot say enough good about it. If you're on the fence about joining this program, grab your spot, like it fills up every time. The program is incredible and you don't wanna miss this opportunity. The biggest takeaway for me from Rise Above the Hood has been the profound realization that I am worthy of receiving, creating, and living the most amazing life I can imagine. Now, speaking these words before Rise Above the Herd would have felt like a lie, but now I embody them with such belief and confidence in myself. The reality is that you were born into a world where you were taught that to sacrifice your self-interests and personal desires for the sake of your friends, family, community, and society made you a good and moral person. But the truth is that this is all part of deeper conditioning designed to keep you playing small, to prevent you from ever realizing your true worth and value, and to entrain you to a life of unlived potential. That's why now more than ever, in a time where the control systems all around us have proven without a doubt that they cannot be relied upon to support our evolution, it's we that must be willing to take a journey of self-excavation to discover the inner riches and potential and to truly become our own authorities so we can navigate this world and our lives appropriately. To learn more, head to riseaboveTheHerd.co or hit the link in the brief and see if you're down to reserve one of the limited spots available for round seven. You are now listening to the Here for the Truth podcast, hosted by Joel Rafidi and Eurosimos. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Here for the Truth podcast. We have the amazing Laura Lee Scaife with us here today. Her studies began in 1978 in Canada, where she cultivated her skills as a consultant and teacher of astrology. Since then, she has expanded her knowledge through extensive studies covering psychology, philosophy, mythology, science, history, and current affairs. As an educator, she's presented classes and lectures to various astrological societies, the Canadian Astrologers Conference, Well Within Retreats, and the San Diego Friends of Jung. Her unique expertise in integrating mythic images and Jungian concepts into astrology brings a depth of insight into her work with her clients, helping to reveal how they can actualize inherent potentials and construct a personal destiny in tune with who they really are. In addition to working with clients, she's currently engaged in an ongoing deep study of Lord of the Rings as the guiding myth of our time and is in the process of developing a series of videos and workshop material exploring this theme. I'm so excited for this conversation. Uh, Laura Lee, thanks for being here for the truth. Oh, thank you so much. I can hardly wait. This is great. <laughs> I always love talking about my favorite thing, the Lord of the Rings. Oh, absolutely. There's a series definitely near and dear uh, to my heart. I'm sure many of our listeners as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess first and foremost, before we before we direct our attention there, like mm-hmm. how did how did this process evolve for you? How did you find yourself deeply interested, I guess, in in this work, in this study, mm-hmm. um, and down this path? Well, uh, I'd say that my personal healing journey, uh, as well as the realization of my my vocatio, uh, started with uh, studying astrology, mm-hmm. and uh, that began in 1978. And I, I actually was kind of dragged kicking and screaming to astrology because um, 
like most people uh, still to this day, I, I just thought astrology was the horoscope you read in the newspaper yeah. and, mm-hmm. you know, thought it was kind of stupid. So I had friends at the time who were just learning. They were just learning how to calculate charts. And in those days, we had to do charts by hand. There was no computer, so we had to do all the math and all the calculations and draw the charts by hand. So, so it was quite a process. Anyway, these friends of mine kept saying, oh, you know, this oh, it's so wonderful. You really got to read this book. And so finally I said, okay, okay. And once, uh, once I started doing that, um, it became very clear to me that this was an amazing, uh, miraculous, in fact, tool for self-understanding. So it was certainly very helpful to me um, at a time when I was in desperate need of help. And then, of course, that grew into understanding other people. And, and in the early first you know, couple of years or so of studying astrology, then I uh, was introduced to Carl Jung. And that, that was another synchronicity. Um, it came, first of all, through uh, some books that were just starting to come out at the time by a Jungian analyst and astrologer by the name of Liz Green, who, who has a school um, of Jungian astrology in London. So uh, once I got tuned into Jung, it just kind of pulled everything together because I always felt that there was some some things missing about astrology, or at least the astrology that I was learning at the time, which was, a, it, you know, that was sort of the beginning of psychological astrology. Um, and, you know, so it wasn't just predictive sort of fortune-telling type stuff. But once um, once I got on to Jung and started understanding archetypes and mythology, that really pulled it all together. And, and so I really, di- I really dove into Jung and then Joseph Campbell a little bit further on down the road. And the things that, uh, the, well, the thing that really struck me very early on was a s- statements made by both Jung and Campbell. And that is, they said that, um, Myth is to a culture what dreams are to the individual, mm-hmm. and I thought, "Wow, I wonder if that's I wonder if that's true." So I kind of played around with that idea because I had already, you know, been pretty involved in dream work and studying dreams and my own dreams and the dreams of my clients and whatnot, and and it was pretty obvious that dreams, uh, you know, are extremely powerful and basically the story of your own life being told to you um, when you sleep. And so I wondered, gee, um, well, if that is so, is do we have a myth? We, that is the so-called modern culture or the, or the peoples of, say, North America and overall the men of the West. So, um, my first kind of thoughts about this started actually with the Star Wars movies. So I got quite locked on to the Star Wars movies um, right in the beginning. And I think they, st- they were coming out right around the end of the 1970s. I think it was mm-hmm. the first, you know, the first three. And, and uh, so I worked on that for a while and I saw the characters in the Star Wars 
uh, series as representing astrological planets. So I was kind of looking at it from that point of view and then, you know, got further into um, Joseph Campbell and the power of myth and all of that stuff. And, um, and then over the course of, oh, that, you know, 1980s to late 90s, um, I, I was very deeply into studying Jung and particularly the shadow and trying to understand, you know, what, what is this shadow thing all about and, and also what is evil. And um, so I was pretty deep into that, and but mostly focused on personal psychology, like looking at looking at how this anti-life force operates in the personal psyche. And I hadn't really turned my attention very much to what was going on in the outer world. Um, but towards the the end of the 1990s, there were things taking place in the outer world that were so disturbing um, that it really got my attention. And largely that had to do with the, there was kind of an eruption around that time. And I was living actually in San Diego, uh, California. Hmm. And there were a series, actually, I think there was like three or four uh, very um, public, or or at least there was endless news reporting on it. There was abduction rape and murder of children. And there were, as I say, three or four, like in a very short period of time, and it was all over the news. And, you know, so the, that kind of thing coming into my consciousness and probably the consciousness of the larger collective really struck me. And, and I thought, wow, you know, the evil, evil is on the march. And, um, what is that all about? So looking into that, and then, of course, the big event that took place on September 11th, 2001. And as an astrologer, uh, of course, I was watching for that um, Saturn-Pluto opposition because I knew it was coming up. And um, it was exact about three weeks before September 11th. And so... Um, that, uh, of course, was a shock for everyone. And um, just looking at the astrology and wondering, like, whoa, you know, what, what, where are we now? And then two months later, lo and behold, um, Fellowship of the Ring appeared in theaters. I, I did not know about uh, Tolkien, hardly at all. I, all I knew about... Uh, Tolkien was, you know, I'd, he'd been referenced here and there. I thought, oh, yeah, he's the guy who writes children's stories and isn't that cute. Um, but I, I was not aware of, of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So I, I went to the film, and it absolutely blew my mind. And, and I thought immediately, oh, my God, this is the myth for our time. Hmm. And um, it, it really... It, you know, took me over. I mean, it was like, yeah, I mean, I, I was absolutely possessed by, by this thing and the incredible importance of this movie um, and this whole story as a way to understand 
what was happening to the world, what was happening in the larger collective, and what was happening to us as individuals living against the backdrop uh, of this larger collective process. So that really started my deep um, research into uh, just the the question of what what does this mean? You know, what how is it that this story seems to come to us right at this most critical time in human history? And and if it really is the myth for our time, then how can we make conscious use of it. So thinking of myth um, as like the operating manual for our psyche and, and the significance of bringing together the imaginal and the intellectual. So how I wanted to put that together in my series was really focused around that. So I wanted to have the images from the films and the video clips and and stuff like that um, there as the the images that would awaken something in the psyche and then also have the analytical intellectual information um, along with that. So that was kind of my approach. And... Um, it's just been an ongoing deep dive, and I can say that almost every day, especially now with everything that's going on, um, it just seems to me that, yep, this is the myth for our time, all right. Mm. And uh, and that, in fact, we may very well be right now um, at the battle at the Black Gate. Wow. Amazing introduction. Yeah, I've got, I've got, I've got hundreds of questions. Perspective. Oh, good. Well, fire away. Oh, may I ask? Already, <laughs> I'd love to ask the two of you um, a question too before we go too far in. Sure. When did you each first discover Lord of the Rings? Was it the books or the films? And how old were you? It was oh. the films. Yeah. It was the films for me. I watched them all right when they came out uh, immediately. Uh, uh-huh. you know, went into the theater. They're each what, like three hours long. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know about the books to be honest wow how um, old were you well if it, i was 21 in 2011 i'm oh, sorry 2001 oh. so okay. um yeah i was early 20s yeah I, I remember my dad taking me to watch the movie i was 11 years old in 2001 wow yeah mm-hmm. and i remember watching fellowship of the ring in the cinema yeah wow okay yeah. And, and watching those movies too was there was a really huge shift in technology you know no kidding with those movies because i remember yeah. I mean, now with the, what we see now, you go back and watch them. You're like, oh, what we've done technologically yes. is so advanced now. But I, in that moment, early 2000s, when those movies came out, I was like, whoa. Yeah. Wasn't, wasn't, wasn't Matrix that year as well? 2001? I, I think it. I think the Matrix it, 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 was it, 1999. Oh, 99. Um, oh, wow. I, I remember watching so. that and being like, you know, the special effects is never going to get any better than this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. CGI I, I watched, and everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I watched that two date. It was in college, so it yeah. might have been yeah late nineties uh, or yeah, early two thousands. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I had a quite an interesting experience. Um, in it must have been around two thousand three or something. It was after the DVDs came out, 
and uh, I was visiting family, and I had I had um, four nieces and a nephew um, within the age range of twelve to seven years old, and um, this was in the middle of the summer. So they're they're out of school. It's a beautiful, hot, nice summer day. And they're all down in the dark, in the basement, watching Lord of the Rings over and over and over again. And they were absolutely hypnotized. Hmm. And I thought, wow, this, this story is entering their psyche as if it were a dream. Because they weren't analyzing it psychologically, obviously. Yeah. But they were just absorbing this the, the images and the the whole story. So I think that especially the young people, children who watch those films early on, that it they have taken it into their psyche. I think this myth is alive um, in the human psyche. Um, and it's it's just needing to be activated. Yeah. Well, let, let, let's go there. What's the best entry point? To start, I guess, unpacking this for our audience. Obviously, we've got, you know, we don't have four or five hours here. Um, <laughs> I wish we did. But where, how, how, how do we begin to, to address this monster? Well, why don't, why don't you start with your questions and then we'll just kind of flow along from there. Sure. Well, I mean, my, my, my questions, you know, even just prize Lord of the Rings related to psychology and astrology, et cetera. I don't have time to, to I think, to, to get into those. But I guess I think the best way, like this, this is what's coming up for me, is like, can you give us the broad stroke synopsis of how you correlate this to the guiding myth of our time? And then we'll then we'll dissect it from there. Mm -hmm. Well, my my um, process or purpose, I guess, in um putting it all together it really was a question mm -hmm. you know is this really the myth for our time and and so just like in dream analysis so there's a technique used in dream analysis called amplification and that's simply um a process of analyzing the symbols and the characters that come up in a dream so if you Say if you dreamed this story and it was your personal dream, well, then you'd begin by taking apart each of the symbols and analyzing them. You know, what, for example, the ring. Well, okay, what is the symbolism of a ring? Mm -hmm. And I unpacked all of that in my episode on the ring. Um, but it is that technique um, that I used throughout the film. And if you're if you're doing dream analysis, I mean, there's... Some dreams are just processing, you know, your stuff that happened during the day. Um, but there are dreams that are prophetic. And, you know, you yourselves may have had mm -hmm. prophetic dreams um, and or dreams of events, whether it's events or just things that are happening within you psychologically. And um, so I thought, well, if this is the myth for our time, then there ought to be things taking place in the outer world that corresponded to some of the themes and emotional content that was depicted in the, the Lord of the Rings, in the story. And so I started to map things out, you know, match them up and 
go deeper into the symbolism and the uh, the characters, like what did each of the characters represent, and then unpacked that symbolism. Say, for example, the king, and what does it? What does kingship mean? And it, is that something that we need to see actualized in our time? And I would say absolutely yes. And and also thinking along the lines of, well, if this is the myth for our time and we can understand it as having some kind of a prophetic component to it, not necessarily prophetic in the sense of, well, this is going to happen at this time and then that's going to happen and other things along the way, but rather it, it's um, – revealing an unfolding of deeper psycho-spiritual processes that are taking place within the human psyche now. Because we've never been to this place before in, in human evolution. We've never had the tools available to us. We've never had the psychological understanding. I mean, that's only happened in, what, the last 70, 50 years or so. Um Prior to that, people weren't sitting around thinking about, you know, what is the meaning of my life and all the archetypes yeah. and stuff. They were surviving. So our so-called modern culture has freed us up, physically at least, from a lot of the kinds of demands of just survival. Um, and But since, you know, really the 1960s, we, you know, things have opened up psychology and all kinds of studies, philosophy, and and then there was, of course, during the 1960s, the um, uh, coming from Eastern philosophy started to come into the West and yoga and meditation and all kinds of spiritual studies and this and that. So, so there's been this flowering of information and knowledge in the last uh, 50 to 70 years. And of course, Jung, um, I think Jung is just now coming into his fullness um, in, in terms of people learning about Jung and understanding Jung. So we're here, we're on this threshold now um, where we're, we're going through some kind of metamorphosis. And I compare that to the battle at the Black Gate um, because I think we are really, we're on the razor's edge um, of absolute destruction. And so there is something that rises up in the human psyche when the life force itself is threatened. And I call that the Promethean spirit. And it's connected certainly to astrology and particularly the sign of Aquarius and uh, the ruling planet Uranus. But how that compares to Lord of the Rings is I think it is the awakening of kingship, this notion of kingship and how uh, important that is for men um, and women too, of course. But um, as I delve into in my episode on kingship and the masculine, I think there has been, um, well, a war on men and a concerted effort to uh, castrate men. Um, 
both literally and psychologically. And as a result, if, if there is no men, because the highest manifestation of the uh, masculine principle is kingship, and what kings do is they build realms. So the king is the builder of realms that are strong enough, secure enough, and safe enough that life can grow within that realm. So if you're an enemy wanting to destroy, first thing you're going to do is castrate the men because then there's no builders, there's no um, energies or people there to build and protect. And then the women um, fall into fear and lose um the sense of their femininity. One of the most striking things I would say about uh, Lord of the Rings is the fact that all the mothers die of grief. The mothers of the main characters die of grief. It's like, whoa, that's pretty chilling. So, and they die of grief when touched by evil. So we're the story opens up with with that idea. The mothers die of grief. Theoden, the king uh, of Rohan, is um, demasculated by the influence of Wormtongue, the mm. you know a little minion of Sauron. So, so there. This is the. It shows kind of where we are, that theme of men have been demasculated, uh, the women are left terrified and unable to bring forth within them the very will to live. If the mothers die of grief, that's saying something, that the, the very will to live is extinguished yeah well it's it signals a lack of safety right there's yeah. no there's no safe space to thrive to flourish right mm -hmm. yeah and so if you're a, a bearer and bringer of life and you know that's your purpose yeah and you're you're not in a place of safety then of course you're you're not going to want to bring forth new life if it's going to be threatened and destroyed. So are we not kind of in a place like that right now? Mm -hmm. I think we are. However, I will say that I see kingship rising all over the place, including men like you. Men of kingly stature are have been rising up over the past several years, right? But I would say, especially in the last maybe four or five years, what do you think? Yeah, yeah well, I actually, thank you for saying that because I was thinking, and we were talking about this before we pressed record, that uh, Sophie and I watched Lord of the Rings from my wife and I, we watched Lord of the Rings in March 2020 because I sensed something was up and I felt this 
this pull within me to to want to step into my power more and to yes. speak out even more and to create something. And, you know, you talk about creating realms. Again, yeah, I'm not a king where I'm wearing a literal crown on my head, but it's like, no. you know, shortly after Joel and I met and we came yep. together and we wanted to create something that can provide a space for people to learn and to grow yes. and, to, and to take more ownership over their lives. And so yes. I think like kings in general, you know, they inspire, you know, people around them to 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 own themselves more, their yes. minds, their bodies, and to move into the world with more intention, to move through it gracefully, and to mm -hmm. have the strength to encounter like shit that's gonna come up. That's and right. So, you know, there is there isn't a coincidence. And you know, Lord of the Rings had a huge impact on me. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how these archetypes play on on an individual because yes. the two books that I've mentioned on this podcast before that had an influence on me because I was you know I was always curious about young I was an mm. actor for a long time I trained as an mm. actor and there were there were ah. um, my teacher had psychologists on their staff that were influenced by Carl wow. Jung as well and there there were these two books one was called Gods and Every Man oh and yeah Gene Boland's books yeah Gene Boland's books oh yeah amazing. And it, it's really fascinating because as a man, you read this and you go, okay, well, where do I need to like, what am I embodying and mm -hmm. where and what part of me don't I have access to? Now, again, I think some people have maybe more default things where they're they're meant to to embody one archetype over the mm -hmm. other. But if yeah. you want to be, when you talk about shadow work, when you talk about integration and wholeness, which those words mm -hmm. get thrown thrown out a lot, yeah. how can we integrate these these positive qualities of these archetypes in, in the sense of these two books, they're represented by the Greek gods. Yeah. And how can we see where maybe like the shadow elements of these archetypes are playing out in us as well? Mm -hmm. So to segue, it's like, how can individuals utilize these archetypes from these specific characters within, mm -hmm. within Lord of the Rings to enhance their life and to enhance themselves on their own personal hero's journey? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, the idea of kingship um, initially has to come from the inside out. In other words, as a man, your your journey is about realizing your particular expression of kingship. Mm -hmm. And it's not about, yeah, you're, you're going to rule the world now. You, you, kingship is about mastering your own, first of all, inner realm. And once there is at least some of that going on, then you can start thinking about building a larger realm. So your first realm to master is your inner world. Then it is your, your personal life, your relationships, your home, family, business, work, uh, how you interact with the community, and ultimately how are you as a role model? The king is a role model for how to be a mature man. And it was said um, that to, to be seen by the king was to be blessed. So I think from that perspective, just what you've um, shared about the kind of work that you're doing, you know, both of you are doing, that is king work because you are, you are helping others see the king and queen in themselves. Is that so? I'd like to think so. You know, we're, oh, we're yeah. doing our part and our version the, of it. The, the mm -hmm. name of our group coaching program is Rise Above the Hood. So, Oh, there you go. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. 
And I, I really like uh, Robert Moore's metaphor um, mm-hmm. of the, the quadrated structure, the four cornerstones of uh, the masculine principle. So there's the, the capital K king, um, say, at the top. And then the four cornerstones would be the small K king, the warrior, the magician, and what he calls the lover. So the small K king is is the leadership component of an individual man. And, and I think that within every man, there, there are these qualities of leadership and that part of becoming a man is, first of all, discovering wh- what are your gifts, what are your talents and gifts, how can you um, exercise those muscles and claim those talents and gifts to the point that you're able to bring those to working on the more undeveloped aspects of the self. And and everyone has, as as you said, Erasmus, the, the shadow. The shadow is not bad. A- and I think that it's important to um, make that point that um, a lot of times people think, oh, the shadow is a bad, you know, it's this evil thing. Well, no, the shadow is simply the personification of those aspects of the self that have not been allowed to appear in consciousness. And so much of where the shadow begins is in early childhood. And, you know, most people have a you know, there everyone's got some kind of problems that that uh, take place in childhood. Okay, so there's varying degrees of dysfunctional families, but nobody's perfect. Our parents aren't perfect, so there's bound to be some little aspects of your authentic self that, in childhood, when you sought to express that unique authentic part of yourself if the message or the feedback you got from parents and and the immediate environment was like oh no that's bad that that way you're behaving is is not acceptable and so you better not be that anymore and so we learn then to repress certain parts of ourself that didn't get the kind of mirroring that we needed. And so those little bits of the self get locked up in the dark corner of the basement and they don't grow up. So they become a component of the shadow. So the shadow is really the personification uh, of those primitive, immature, or childlike aspects of the self that have not been allowed into consciousness. So shadow work yeah, go ahead. That, that's a heroic journey in itself, right? Yes. Recover, recovering the repressed parts, you know, bringing yeah. back the boon, the gifts, and the life force that comes, you know, with, with activating Absolutely. That. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, the in, in terms of this um, fourfold structure, so at each of those points, we have to look at, so let's say the small K king. So what are your leadership qualities? Have you developed those? And if not, why not? And how do you go within to scope out those talents and gifts, those strong muscles, and get them exercised so you start to feel a sense of confidence in your own um, talents and gifts? 
And from there, you become a role model. So, so a true leader is not somebody who, who gets up on their hind legs and says, hey, everybody, follow me. I'm the best. I'm the king. I'm the leader. No, that's not what it is. It, it's you, by virtue of how you conduct your life, how you manage your own inner realm, and how you participate in positively mirroring the others in your realm of experience. Mm-hmm. So then for any one, any man to be a, a capital K king, he's got to have that leadership part, and he also has to have a fully functioning warrior. So the warrior's job is to patrol the borders of the realm and to ensure that the the realm is secure, that there's not holes in the borders and invasions taking place that would disrupt or destroy the realm. And that warrior component, um, I, I think, is an area of masculine psychology that is in pretty desperate need of development. And and again, I'm I'm seeing, and I'm sure you are too, a lot of a lot of development in that regard, certainly with um, martial arts training and things of that nature that have provided young boys and young men particularly to learn how to manage this warrior component in themselves. So depending on the personal psychology of individual men, um, you know, there are some men who... Uh, are completely castrated, right? Like they won't even pick up the sword. And then there are other men who um, are acting out of the warrior in an unconscious way and being aggressive and destructive in the expression of that warrior energy. So that that kind of martial arts-like training is a way to learn how to manage that energy and use it like a laser beam to, first of all, get things done and and to be um, a wise protector of the realm, to know when do you stand up and fight and when do you negotiate. I mean, it's, it's a very important role in, in our time. When so when 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 we first meet Aragorn, how how far along this development journey is he? Well, that's an interesting question. Yeah, um, well, Aragorn, of course, realizes that he's supposed to be the king, um, but he fears that he, in his own weakness, he fears his own weakness. And he fears that if he were to be uh, exposed to the, the power of the king, that he, like his ancestor Asildor, would fail and it would result in a thousand years of darkness. So he hides out and um, disguises himself and calls himself a ranger and kind of cruises around on the outskirts watching what's going on. And uh, however, his fate um, eventually leads him to the point where he, it's like 
he's got to do it or it's the end. So he comes into the scene presented as a man with this fear. And where that is really is a very powerful scene, actually, in the films between Aragorn and Arwen. And in the scene, Aragorn is is uh, tending to the altar with the broken blade, Narsal. And um, he's looking very worried. And Arwen comes in to the scene and she says to him, why do you fear the past? You are Isildur's heir, not Isildur himself. You will face the same evil and you will defeat it. So that scene is is an image of a man's inner woman, the inner feminine, the inner queen that is the guide to the man's soul. So in that image, Aragorn is essentially hearing this part of himself that is telling him, no, you have a destiny, you will face evil, and you will defeat it. And then then he, shortly after that, uh, sets off on the quest. So I guess maybe his his warrior was most developed at this mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then and then of course the final test is when uh he he takes the reforged blade, Lendil, when Elrond brings him the reforged blade and tells him, you know, set aside the ranger, become the man you were meant to be. And then what happens then? What's his first, where does he have to go after that? To the underworld. Hmm. Yeah. And, and yeah, so he has to go and deal with the, uh, the um, shadows of the underworld. Rise Above the Herd reminded me, because it is a reminder that I have all the power within myself to create change in my own life. It's our mission to make life-changing and radical transformation as accessible as possible. We want to remind each of you that regardless of where you are in your journey, it's not too late to truly become the hero of your story and lead deeply authentic and fulfilling lives. If this resonates, head to riseaboveTheHerd.co or click the link in the brief. So reserve one of the limited spots available for round seven today. I mean, there's so many questions to ask. Obviously, there's nine hours of this show, and <laughs> I know you talked about it. And and anyone that's listening, um, you can obviously go and watch all her videos and everything she's created about this. But uh, what is what is the symbolism of the ring? Because you mentioned it earlier. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, um, first of all, the ring. Is a, a ring is a 3D version of a circle. So we start with uh, the symbol of a circle. You know, what is a circle? An ancient, ancient symbol. Uh, 
some say, you know, 10,000 some odd years old that when the, the circle first appeared because it, it is, um, a symbol of wholeness, of integration and of the cycles of life and nature. And uh, I mean, human beings took the time to build massive circles all over the world in, you know, with massive stones and things of this nature. So obviously there is something deep in the human psyche that, um, it is related to this ring, this symbol of the ring. And it's also the Euroboros, the snake eating its own tail. So there's that image of the, the cycles of life, the serpent who devours herself and mates with herself and reproduces herself eternally. So that brings in the the zodiac is a Euroboros. That's another circle. So there circles are everywhere and in the ancient past also the circle is the zero and so then that takes us into um numbers and symbology and uh, you know the uh, appearance of the zero was a major thing that out of nothing something comes Wow, that's that was like a revolution in human consciousness. And if we keep taking that uh, that kind of imagery through to so so there's the circle is the two D, a ring is a three D circle, and a three D circle is a torus. So then we have the this idea of the torus as the central unit of everything from the tiniest to the biggest in the universe that everything is made of toruses this energy field that surrounds our own bodies and every living thing and the earth and the planets and the solar system and the galaxy, it's all made of Tauruses. So, not surprising then, this incredible power, this source of how all life works, not surprising then that the forces of evil um, would want to control that. And I think that's kind of what we're dealing with right now, is, is this the incredible technology that humans have been developing, this ability to use nature and the powers of nature and the cosmos to um, destroy rather than to support life. And so, looking at um, how is that um, evil manifesting right now in terms of just the way things are unfolding on the earth. So, so I get quite deeply into that in my episode on the ring and the nature of evil, because frankly, I think that uh, in order for us to, to really 
come out the other end of this is we really need a more sophisticated understanding of evil in our time. And I think that's starting to happen for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's there is still, I think, a lot of resistance to even to just talking about evil. Um, I mean, I've, I talk about this all the time because I talk to people like you and other people who are interested in this sort of thing. But, it, you know, if I'm having conversations with um, normies, um, it's, there's extreme resistance. That mm-hmm. they don't want to, don't even want to hear about evil. Well, yeah. well, this really, yeah, and this relates to you know even what we were talking about before is like shadow work. I think there's yes. resistance because people don't want to acknowledge that within themselves is the potential to commit evil acts. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So and now understanding and and really observing, uh, just how potent these weapons uh of evil are right now i mean again this this has never happened before so we're on this uh razor's edge as as galadriel says to to the fellowship when they come to meet with her she says the quest stands upon the edge of a knife stray but a little and it will fail to the ruin of all but hope remains while the company is true. Hmm, so what might that mean? How we prevail is through the company that is forming fellowships with other men and women of like mind and uh, of courage who, who are willing to step up and do the shadow work and not only step up and do that at the personal level, but but to step up and do that in your outer life in some way. I mean, it's one thing to do your inner work and sit in your room and do whatever it is, you know, to heal yourself, and that's all great. But eventually, I'd say especially now, um, we all have to step up. And, and rise to our own individual kingship and queenship if we're going to meet the, the challenge and overcome an enemy that is coming for us all. Yeah. And, and that requires overcoming the little internecine conflicts and little squabbles that go on, um, even amongst people who are, you know, on the path, so to speak. Uh, one of the most effective tools of the enemy is divide and conquer and keeping keeping us all you know fighting amongst ourselves over ridiculous things and meanwhile the force of evil is on the march and so for say for example men like yourselves um as you come to have a sense of your own kingship well then you are forming allegiances and alliances with other men of kingly stature, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's it's funny. We have a membership community connected to this podcast called Friends of the Truth. <laughs> Very much seems. All like right, there you go. The fellowship, the fellowship of the truth. <laughs> yes, it is. That's what it is. Yeah, <laughs> what's and the, 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 yeah. that grows. Yeah, that's right. Well, what's what's the significance of I guess 
Frodo or like the hobbits, who to me I guess represent you know the the inner child. I could be wrong there. Yes, I don't know. absolutely. Being, to being 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 tasked with ultimately having to to do with the evil. Mm. I, I'm not a real quickly. I'm not an expert on like the tarot, but would the would they relate to the fool at all? Or yes. No? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's it's interesting that the hobbits um, are depicted as being the the size of children of about five years old. And and so what we're dealing with in terms of the hobbits is that um, divine child archetype and that innocence of the child. Mm-hmm. And the Shire is symbolic of the, the garden, the garden of the great mother and the safe place where like the womb, like, like the womb, right? It is, yes, it is, and you know, verdant and voluptuous, and you know, full of life and joy and play, and it's safe and it's fun, and it, it's it's rather similar to the Garden of Eden, actually, mm-hmm. a similar archetype. So yeah, why would it be a little? hobbit that has to take on this burden well i think it is of course the symbol of the the hero's journey that it starts from a place of innocence and and, you know a, a, a place where everyone kind of arrives at hopefully in the course of their development um the realization that uh oh, um, I'm not a child anymore. You know, I've been given a some kind of responsibility, and uh, I got to show up now. The, the, the world ain't what it seemed for you know the, the first few years of my life there. Yeah, the loss of innocence. Yeah, yeah, and I mean that can be traumatic, and and as Frodo his journey unfolded you you get to see just how challenging that really is but ultimately the hobbits who go on the quest are are doing so in order to preserve the shire in order to preserve this sacred place this this garden of the divine child and I, I think it's so important that all of us understand that that the Shire is a place within. Yeah. That we all have a place um, within where the inner child can feel safe, and where that part of ourselves can play and can feel joy, and this idea of first of all finding that place because if there has been say a lot of trauma in childhood very often um that there is you know the loss of access to that nurturing nourishing place within where where you can go to restore yourself and so we all need especially now, to cultivate that inner shire place and to make connection with 
the inner child, the part, that part of ourselves that gives us access to wonder and awe and joy and creativity. Mm. And without that, um, we're, well, you don't get joy. <laughs> so that's important. So like for, from this perspective, would you like to make the correlation potentially that, you know, the reclamation of the inner child is obviously fundamental to the ultimate undoing of evil? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you if you're bereft of joy, um, you know that makes life pretty difficult. Mm-hmm. And and when you hear about the levels of depression and suicide and and just like the um, just sense of despair that is sweeping around the planet at the moment, and, and especially with the young people. Who, who are the most being preyed upon by, by this destructive force and their innocence is being uh, destroyed yeah. in, in the most horrific of ways, actually. And I see that as what's, what's happening with the uh, predation of children, with the um, drag queen story time and this sort of thing, the yeah. stealing of the innocence of children it, in right in everybody's face. I mean, it's not, it's not even, you know, it's not even covered up now. It's just like right out there <clears throat> and we're supposed to accept it. You know, we're supposed to celebrate all of this stuff when what is actually happening before our very eyes it is the stealing of innocence, the innocence of the divine child. Mm-hmm. And so we must recapture that and and create a space within and without where that innocence and and just purity and beauty is protected. Yeah. Um astrologically, I guess, you know, we've spoken about Aragorn and Frodo a little bit. What what mm-hmm. planets would you correlate those two characters to? Um, well, I, I don't think you could, or at least I don't think I could put one planet (laughs) connected to, to any of them because each of them in the course of the story. So, so yeah, it's primarily about Aragorn becoming king, Mm. but actually what's going on is that each of the characters goes through his own personal journey and rises to his individual greatness and kingship in yeah. his own way. And each of the, the members of the fellowship, uh, I think, represent different aspects or manifestations of, of the masculine principle. Um, so, for example, Gimli is a representative of the more like rugged masculinity you know i see that as you know the rodeo riders and the you know the wrestlers and the the um rig workers and the miners and you know the guys who get dirty and (laughs) and who are might be a little rough around the edges um uh but they have their own path and their own um, process to go through to rise to kingship as who they are. And then the, there's 
the men who are maybe more elvish. So not the rough and tumble, uh, you know, Gimli types. Yes, the the, the, the Erasmus types, very, very precise. <laughs> Leg- Legolas style. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like those, these are the martial artists, the Zen masters, the academics, the, you know, the ones who, who develop um, in the realm of the mind and so forth and maybe aren't, you know, rolling around and wrestling down steers. <laughs> I, I do. I do have some Gimli humor, though. That's for sure. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Right. And and I think you can. I mean, we can all and I do it all the time. I look out into the, the world and pick out, OK, who's you know, who's representing this this archetype? And si- since we're just kind of talking about Gimli, uh, I think the best representation of of Gimli is Alex Jones. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, isn't he like just Gimli all over the place? Yeah. Very true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So again, why why this is the myth for our time is because we can see in the outer world characters that that show up that carry for us Mm -hmm. these archetypal potentials. And another thing that I I really uh, think is appearing powerfully right now is, of course, the archetype of the king. And it is my theory that when um, we come to a place in history such as where we are now, when the life force itself is threatened and there is a need for a king, then it constellates within the psyche of individual men this need for kingship. And there will often be individuals who appear on the scene who will hold and carry that archetype for the people. It doesn't mean that that individual is a king, but rather that there is something rising up in the human psyche and it gets projected onto a particular individual, whether he is capable of that or not, is almost irrelevant. What's important is that it's awakening something in the human psyche that needs to be um developed and expressed right now yeah and yeah i think i think the events of 2020 definitely gave rise and caused a stir in that regard yes. but i think initially you know before kingship particularly during that period it was it was the warriors you know that, that warrior archetype was being yep. developed first like all right they're 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 at the gate you know yeah it needs to be we need to stand up you know we need to employ all defenses then as mm-hmm. things kind of you know settled and fizzled down then i think mm-hmm. that king energy kind of came in all right we have some time yeah. to think you know, to, to strategize, to, um, to think. That's broader. right. Yeah, exactly. Well, and when did this first kind of show up? I would say in 2016 with the election of Donald Trump. So no matter what you think of him as a person, because the truth is none of us really know who this guy is. Yeah. However, he has been able to hold this archetypal energy because he is born 
with uh, Mars in Leo on the ascendant at 20, 20, his Mars is at 26 degrees, his ascendant is 28 degrees of Leo, and the fixed star Regulus, the star of the king, is at 28 degrees of Leo. Now, an ancient astrologer would look at a chart like that and say, oh, well, this one is going to be the warrior king. Hmm. So, whether he is that or not, something happened in the psyche of the men of the West that brought that individual to a position of power. And so, that archetype was awakened in the collective. Mm-hmm. And then, as you, you said, Joel, then, you know, things happened. We had the COVID and the Saturn-Pluto conjunction that took place in January of 2020, the, the big boil lancing that we're still in the process of cleaning up. Um, and yeah, things kind of fizzled down and, you know, men, individual men were doing a lot of inner work during all of this time, right? Is that the case for, for the two of you? Has it been like a real intense growth process since 2016? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, um, mo- most intensely, definitely the last, you know, three and a half years, yeah. but right. 2016, 20, 2015 for me was the real, I guess, mm-hmm. beginning of, of the arc. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, in 20, 2014, 2015, uh, was the Uranus, um, Pluto square. So it was kind of the harbinger, like, hello, everybody, wake up. We got some big stuff coming, big oil lancing on the horizon. So get ready. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just quickly on Trump, like there's a, there's a fair bit of like jester kind of archetypal energy there. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Oh, he's t- totally a trickster. He's a Gemini yep. with the sun conjunct Uranus. Yeah. And he's born on a lunar eclipse. So, I mean, that's pretty significant too. Um, somebody, people who are born on eclipses generally have, you know, some kind of a destin- destiny um, built in. I mean, it may not be a big one like the Donald, but um, if you're born on a lunar eclipse or a solar eclipse, um, that certainly mm, is a powerful dynamic in your natal chart. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about Gandalf. Gandalf, the wise man. Yeah. Well, what Gandalf represents that part of the masculine psyche that is the wise inner teacher, the wise inner man. And in order for a man to be a wise king, he needs access to a source of wisdom that that comes from the inside and that guides the man along his way to his transformation, which is what takes place when Gandalf confronts the Balrog. And at that moment, when he falls into the abyss uh, with the Balrog and is consumed by the fire, that's the calcinatio uh, process in alchemy, the burning away of the dross in order to produce the gold or or the opus. Um, and in the alchemical process, the burning produces 
what in the end is the whitening, the albedo. Mm. And so Gandalf comes out the other end of that as Gandalf the White. Um, And so that process of growing one's inner wisdom is the first encountering or the reaching in to pose the question of, you know, what is my life for? What, what am I doing here? What is my purpose? And, and to be in a place of being able to hear that inner guiding voice, that inner something that gives you a sense of, yes, I do have a purpose. I do have meaning in my life. And I do have goals. And I do have a a passion for fulfilling something that is within you. And then to be developing that inner dialogue with that wise part of oneself is what takes you through the various alchemical processes that sharpens your blade in terms of developing the skills and special talents and abilities that you as an individual have. Because again, everybody's different. So the voice of your inner wise teacher is going to be slightly different from that of everyone else. But the important thing is that we have to go in there to call it out. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Like with the Gandalf character, like this, obviously he's the you know the, the embodiment of of wisdom, but he seems to most easily relate to the hobbits, to the children. Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. the child, the childlike quality, the innocence, the openness. Yeah, yeah, because the the a child is a lot more open to you know hearing about stuff especially magical stuff. And uh, whereas as we get older, we tend to get more kind of rigid sometimes in the way we perceive things and the stuff we learn. It's like, okay, well, I'm a grown up and it's this way now. Um, whereas with, with children or younger adults even, that there's more openness to, to explore the the realm of the unknown, the realm of the imaginal. Mm. What, what would the elves represent? And, and mm-hmm. even more specifically, Arwen choosing to become immortal. Yeah. What is that? What does that process uh-huh. represent in your mind? Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I would say the elves are a representation of what humans can become. So I think the elves are showing us what where we're going, that we are all moving in the direction of elvishness, that that's what we are capable of. And, and what are the elves really all about? Well, first of all, they're, they live in absolute and complete harmony with nature. And and their belief system is such that they live in not only in harmony with nature, but their purpose is to enhance the the beauty of nature. 
and instead of to dominate or or to use the natural world and the images of Rivendell and Lothlorien, you know, they're so beautiful and so full of light and um, just harmony. That is really, I think, our highest aspirations. So the elves represent our highest aspirations. And I believe that it is what we are capable of. Hmm. I think we are capable of and, and designed even to become elvish. Hmm. They seem very, um, I guess, interested in, I guess, conserving their own traditions too, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. And And doing so without conquering other mm-hmm. uh, domains yeah you know mm-hmm. they're it's not they're not conquering they're preserving and enhancing and and dedicating their life force to that beauty and harmony and and creativity now arwen uh is rather similar to the goddess aphrodite in that she, Aphrodite in her mythology, um, incarnated herself when she had an affair with a god or a mortal or when she gave birth to a child. And um, she would literally become embodied. So I think Arwen is is a uh, kind of a symbol that represents that Aphrodite kind of quality that she incarnates herself in order to become a vessel for life. And not only just any old life, but in order to become the bearer of the next line of kings. Mm. So she sacrifices willingly her immortality and I think that women, um, when they do bear children, that it is that kind of a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like you incarnate and you sacrifice your, you know, self really. Your life because, force. Like, you, yeah. How much right. life force are you choosing to, you know, dedicate towards giving life? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, until fairly recent, you know, 100 years or so, many women died in childbirth. So it, there was, you know, a chance that you would not make it or that your child would not make it. So, so it was a serious business. And um, this is something that women nowadays have to be really digging into that, um, you know what's what's well oh gosh we could go for hours on what's happened to women but yeah. just to- well, we'll have to have you back because i'm sure there's i'm sure there's <laughs> other lines of questioning we can get into but. oh yeah well and you know relating to your your wife's work your asmos mm-hmm. uh, about the body and how women have been um separated you know from their own body and uh yeah we could go on and on about that but um, as far as Arwen, as an archetype of that role of the maternal nurturing instincts, 
And since we we already mentioned that the one of the central themes is that all the mothers die of grief, including Arwen's mother, Calabrian, who is attacked by orcs. And although Elrond heals her physically, the fact that she was touched by evil, she never recovered spiritually and willingly left Middle-earth to go to the Undying Lands. So for Arwen, the, the daughter of Calabrian and the granddaughter of Galadriel, to make that choice is a huge thing. And I would invite all women to think very carefully about that. And it, it, you know, if you're a woman who has not born children in your life, or maybe not yet, it doesn't mean you don't have that um, archetypal nurturing, nourishing instinct. All women have that. Whether you have children of your own or not, that instinct is there and it must be expressed. And it must be expressed in a healthy way. And And so I think this is major course of learning uh, for women at this time, especially the way women and the feminine at large are uh, under attack, right? I mean, we have men dressing up like women and basically moving in and taking over everything that women supposedly fought to to gain over the last yeah, well, century or so. They're, they're, they're the orcs, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, orcs are invading the Westfold in every direction. Yeah. Well, I mean, orcs also, um, yes, I hear what you're saying, but also they would they would represent the, I guess, the people who just mindlessly obey. Absolutely, that yeah. just go along and they just do what they're told, and yeah, and that's it. And you know, yeah, they they don't maybe they don't have a deep connection to that to that innocent that's right, thousand inner child and. And I think this is why trauma-based mind control is so huge. Oh, it's like yeah. When scared and we could traumatize people, mm-hmm. you know, and then they lose that disconnection to their body, that disconnection yes. to part of them. They're, they're more easily, you know, puppeted. Oh, yeah. That is, that's a perfect description of orcification. Yeah. And, and I know that both of you know uh, and have interviewed Michael Tassarian, and, and uh, one of the central themes of his work is this ancient trauma mm-hmm. that, that, we're all dealing with. And um, that's probably to a large extent why this trauma-based mind control that's, you know, being um, uh, rolled out over us on a daily basis is so effective because there is this deep, deep in the psyche, this ancient wound, this ancient trauma. And, um, people who have not addressed that or you know and or people who have been abused in their own life and i mean we're now coming to understand that that is you know it's monumental that you're hard pressed to find anybody who who's not had some kind of personal trauma i mean i would say especially the younger generations right now because they're they're being born into this mess. So that's a trauma right off the top. 
And then what about the parents of the children that are being born yeah. now? So this orcification business um, has worked very well for the foe. And uh, again, if we don't understand the nature of trauma, how to heal that at a personal level, then we're not going to recognize it in the outer world and know how to deal with it. And yeah, and so the orcs just are just running around um, crazed and literally burning things down. Yeah, you know, they're, they're very collectivist, right? Yeah. Yeah. Even, even I guess with the, you know, I guess we can talk about it, um, like with the, with the worship of the, the eye, right, of Sauron, like needing, needing everyone mm. to be seen all the time, mm -hmm. no personal freedom, no personal private, no private property, no, nothing private. Yeah. Uh-huh. One ring to rule them all. Mm. I love when you, when you do these quotes in your voice and I just love hearing oh. it. He wants to do a few. Yeah, oh, well, really? The, 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 well, the one, one that I'll do, and it's a perfect segue to what we'll get into is my precious, my mm -hmm. precious. You know, like Gollum, you know, like yeah. and that representation. Oh, yeah. Huge character in this in this story. Yeah. Um, I mean, God, we have eight, eight, ten minutes left, and That's we can talk. Yeah, we could keep we could keep going for a little bit. Um <laughs> but but yeah, like what what is the representation of this iconic character? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that Gollum represents the the conflict between ego and shadow, and and that Gollum in the story it is the manifestation of the struggle that's going on within Frodo. Sure. That Frodo is is wrestling down his own, you know, struggle. And and that the the process that Gollum is going through is that he, you know, he succumbs to the ring. He loses himself. And it is only in that relationship with Frodo that he he remembers something about himself prior to becoming Gollum. And Smeagol kind of comes through that little bit in the story. And due to Frodo's compassion, um, he is able to establish a relationship with Gollum that, event well, ultimately, he needs Gollum, you know, to get to Mount Doom. So, so I think that depicts the you know, that part of the hero's journey of dealing with one's own shadow and that conflict between ego and shadow. Ego, the ego wants to be seen as good and nice and acceptable and all of that kind of thing, but if there has been trauma or shadow in the unconscious well then that that ego presentation is it's not true um and the i love some of the well there's a couple of real perfect scenes in the in the films of gollum 
in the cave, you know, holding the precious, stroking the precious. Yeah, precious. Precious. We just do this for the next 10 minutes back and forth. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so what is the precious then in our modern time? I would say it's the smartphone. Mm. The thing you cannot put down. You cannot put it away. You cannot hurt it. You cannot leave it alone. It's the precious. Yeah. Yeah. So Gollum strokes the precious while modern people stroke their smartphone. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that powerful? That's That's so deep. Wow. Mm -hmm. I got to sit with that one for a bit. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. But like, but just you saying that, I think, has just immediately shifted my relationship to my phone. Like, just looking at it and going, "Whoa, okay, I need to be have a little bit more of a conscious relationship with it." At times, I know it, it holds great power as well, right? It does. It does. It does. I mean, ultimately, we have to learn to use the enemy's tool against it. But that—that's what the whole story is about. How you know? We have access to this power now in a way that we've never, ever had before in human history. Not only the power that, you know, just having that object, but it's a symbol of all the other great powers that we human beings have access to now. But the danger always is being possessed by it. Mm-hmm. You know, as Gollum was, and as most people these days are, with with that thing. Well, I mean, to yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say again. It's like I was going to make a joke, but like one smartphone to rule them all. But again, yes. like through through programming, through media, it's like whoever has you know, yeah. I mean, you have the you have the potential to yeah impact a huge amount of people's yes. lives. To what shows up on this. I know. But even even like if you take the analogy that you know the the smartphone is like the ultimate distraction, self sabotage tool. Yes, like, Go- Go- Gollum doesn't know who he is without it. That's right. Yeah, he has to, he has yeah. to be with himself. He can't be with himself. Yeah, so true. Yeah, that's why he he just has to have it. You know, he's got to yeah. have that ring because yeah. it's the only thing that um he that it's like it mirrors him. Mm. You know, and and I think that is uh, a real danger. And we see in the Lord of the Rings story, um, just that that just touching that kind of power, and how it um, is so tempting. And look at what happens to Boromir. So when Boromir, um becomes filled with hubris so so touching into that power getting access even if it's just for a minute to to that much power can trigger that hubris Uh and that is the big danger it is hubris always that brings down the tyrants but but if we're going to use the enemy's tool against it, we have to be able to master 
that thing. We have to be able to put that thing down and walk away. Well, it's kind of like harkens back to that Galandriel quote that you mentioned, like it's a fine line, you know? Yeah. And mm-hmm. but if the company is true, you know, if there's people to hold yes. us accountable, then mm-hmm. we, we, yeah. can, we can wield these weapons appropriately, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Uh, I think it's yet to be seen if, yeah. if we can and will. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, but- I have a, you know, I, be- I believe that... Um, we will overcome this evil that is upon us. Um, and there will be a new age of men yeah. well, and I women. Mean, just, just look at us now, you know, our, our entire organization is used through, done through a computer, through these applications, yeah. through our phone, you know, all these networks, all these communities yeah. are being built, these conversations are being had. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How many people will be listening to this episode on their smartphone? Yeah. yeah. Large uh-huh. majority of our listeners, probably. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so it is a, an incredible gift. But it, it, with every gift comes yep. a curse. Mm-hmm. And, and if we're not personally, psychologically balanced and bringing forth our own kingship and queenship on the inside and staying embodied and grounded and, and anchored within a sense of purpose and meaning in our own communities, then um, we're susceptible to being tempted by that hubris. Like, oh, well, I'm, I've got the power now and, you know, I'm, I'm going to rule the world <laughs> or, or I'm going to use the power to do good. Yeah, that's the worst kind. Yeah, because the worst yeah. evildoers in the world are the ones who roll themselves out as these philanthropists. Yeah, well, even uh-huh. even even like the, the the central bankers, like they have the absolute yeah. power to print money, right? They and it's do. like absolute power corrupts absolutely, absolutely every single time throughout history. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and look at how full of hubris all these so-called people are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's incredible, like, that they even have the gall to get up there and, you know, babble away about how great they are and all the wonder, wonderful things they're doing to save the world Yeah, when, um, you know, those of us who, who are aware enough can see that, that they're just absolutely filled with hubris and their so-called works are destructive and evil yeah. and um, they, they will go down as a result of that um, hopefully sooner rather than later yeah because we're we're dealing with them now where this is the battle at the black gate and yeah. the weapons that are being used against us are coming from every direction it's no longer the battlefield scenario where, okay, you go out to the battle, you shoot back and forth, and somebody wins in the end, and that's it. No, no. We're under attack from fifth, everywhere. Fifth generation. Fifth generation everything fifth, is, yeah. yes, everything is weaponized now. Yeah. Yeah. 
Speaking of Boromir, like briefly, one of the most, I think, touching and emotional scenes in the, or the or series is, you know, mm. Boromir's death, you know, his, yeah. his final words to Aragorn, I would have followed you, yes. my brother, my captain. My yeah. Captain. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So in that moment, Boromir rises to his kingship. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he loses his life, but he reclaims his soul. Mm. Yeah. And and also in that moment, Aragorn sees that he could have been Boromir. Mm-hmm. So it's that recognition of of shadow, you know, like, whoa, that could have been me. Because that was Aragorn's biggest fear all along, that he would be tempted by the power and that he would be unable to resist and that then he would be used by the forces of evil. Yeah. And Boromir, you know, certainly was a, a charismatic leader, a man of kingly stature for sure, a great warrior. Um, but he he wound up falling to hubris, largely due to his father's um the negative effect of his father his mm-hmm. you know denethor wanted boromir and faramir to mirror him he was not he didn't care about them yep it was like they the, they were there to to get him what he wanted yep and boromir fell to that projection yep. so denethor was projecting oh you're the greatest you're the strongest. You're the most awesome. You can wield the ring and bring it to me. Yeah. And and so Boromir, out of his own woundedness, took on that projection and and then fell to that temptation, but redeemed himself right at at death. Mm-hmm. It, it is a touching scene, a beautiful scene, I think. Yeah. Especially yeah, between awesome. men. Yeah, I noticed, noticed an emotional response come up in you the moment I brought brought up the scene. Did you well, I, yeah, I mean, I got really, really emotional yeah. in the moment, just like tears welled up and goosebumps yeah. deep, you know. But even just that saying, my brother, you know, like, yes. you know, I will follow you. It just, it just um, showcases something about like masculine relationship and, right. and connection. And, and I think that's something that's um, missing too, like a deep, oh, deep warrior, but also vulnerable, spiritual, connected, you know, masculine relationship. And I think that's missing from the world. Oh, it sure is. And, and it sounds like the work that you guys are doing is, is really serving to help that and bring that to consciousness and, and develop that amongst other men. You know, what's interesting, uh, Laura Lee, mm-hmm. 75% or more of our audience are women. Is that right? Yep. Ah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. like with, with our coaching programs, it's always predominantly mm-hmm. fem- fe- female. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's kind of true in a lot of areas. Yeah. Um, and I would say just to the women listening that everything to do with kingship is a, is a manifestation of your inner masculine. So we can watch the, these films and understand the nature of the masculine principle as um, an inner construct that in order to be a fully realized queen you 
you must have a relationship to your inner king. Mm-hmm. And that inner masculine principle needs to go through all the stages of development that are represented yeah. in this story. Yeah. And, you know, if, if a woman has not uh, addressed and, and sustained a healthy relationship with her inner masculine, then she's not going to be able to, to sustain healthy relationships with outer men because there will always be that projection of something that is unrealized in herself. And that will get projected out onto outer men and, and then all of that expectation gets projected onto her man like, you need to do this for me, you need to be this for me in order that I can feel safe and comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not the way it works. But women are not supposed to be like men either. And this is a, a, a very toxic message that women have been uh, presented with, certainly since the 1960s. You know, it's like, well, you don't need a man. You can do it all yourself. And I mean, now we're being told that, you know, it's all interchangeable. You know, there's no difference between men and women. And and I think this is, I mean, obviously it's dangerous to men, but I think it's extremely dangerous to women because it teaches us to reject and uh, deny the power and importance of the inner masculine in a woman's psyche. And, and that really is the work that individual women need to be doing right now in order to have a real true love and appreciation of the men in our life. Well said. That's, I think that, you know, that definitely seems to be, you know, the kind of clientele that we, that we tend to be attracting and the people that tend to be drawn to kind of, you know, our, our coaching programs too, which is all about, you know, becoming an individual becoming yourself walk, walking your yeah. authentic path um so there's mm. definitely a reclamation of that happening for women yeah well, well and maybe no just wanted to say that maybe well maybe why so many women are are drawn to your work is because you are men of kingly stature and you are presenting an image of kingship that is authentic and and human and, and as I said earlier, to, it was said that to be seen by the king was to be blessed. And, and so for men to hold that kingly stature and, and to see the qualities in, in men and women and, and to hold a space for that uh, for men and women to to come to some understanding of what kingship really is, um, we we need to be seen by those who have the eyes to see. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, and, you know, appreciate the kind words, and you know, we're continuing on our journey and growing as men and uh, mm-hmm. doing our part to help inspire others. And I think also too, I think the. The, the women that are drawn to our work too, they, they're, they're definitely not in that place where they're embodying the hatred of man, mm-hmm. uh, part of them, you know, there's, there's like a respect for the masculine on some level yes. that, that I think, uh, is important. Um, in that regards that can help them also kind of further integrate it. 
Right. And and a need to relate to and know actual men of kingly stature. And for women, I think it needs to be more on the personal level rather than the archetypal. It, you know, so we were just touching in on the whole the symbolism of Donald Trump and the this king archetype constellating in the collective that um, you know, men would I, I I would suspect get more inspiration from from that as an external archetype and then the support that you, you um, cultivate between each other, you know, and other kingly men. Um, I think for women, it needs to be a little more personal um, to for men that they know personally. Um, and for a lot of women, uh, we didn't have that in our fathers because our fathers were castrated and wounded. And, and not really expressing their kingship. I mean, at least for the most part. Uh, so individual women, I would say, need to have some kind of experience of actual living men, <laughs> you know, in their life that they can interact with and learn about what that masculine energy is all about so that they can find it in themselves and unite with it in that what Jung calls the the um, mysterium conjunctionis, the mystic marriage, the inner marriage, the masculine, feminine. Yeah. Laura Lee, this has been one of my favorite conversations that, that we've had, you know. Oh, wonderful. Um, you know, so much to explore and, you know, one of my favorite topics to discuss is always like on the, on the archetypal level, uh, certainly. Mm. What do you have like a what's what's it like a kind of closing message that you'd like to kind of leave our audience with? Mm. Oh, yeah. well, maybe I would um, I would just uh, repeat the the uh, words of Aragorn before the troops as they went to the battle mm. at the Black Gate. And, and so he says to them, the day may come when the courage of men fails, when we break all bonds of fellowship, a day of wolves and smashing shields and the age of men comes crashing down but it is not this day. This day we fight with all that you hold dear on this good earth. I bid you stand, men and women of the West. Potent, so potent. Yeah, I want to watch the movies again. <laughs> yeah they they will never they will never die no yeah oh i got like just briefly i know we've got a kid that we're editing this podcast but like in in tolkien writing this like is he like tapped into some kind of foresight some kind of collective yeah. archetypal forthcoming like mm -hmm. what's going I on i think there? so i think yeah. so uh, uh you know we well as he tells the story himself, this 
this myth came to him, as he says himself, it, in, it came as a whole thing that he, he was just kind of downloading. Yeah. And so here's, here's a young man, I think he was in his early 20s, wow. sitting in the trenches in World War I. So we're talking like bombs going off and, you know, people's arms and legs blown off. I mean, all his friends were killed. And, and so he's sitting in that place and he was writing in his little notebook these things that were coming to him. And it, and it all came through his study of the languages he heard the languages and because he was a philologist and a, and a you know student of a scholar of ancient northern european languages the guy spoke 35 languages holy shit yeah of ancient dialects and so he heard he heard the story through this these languages mm. and and the images and the whole scenario just kind of rolled out while he was in this place this horrible place so uh, i i think that certainly was his vocatio and um yeah. that he was a man who rose to his greatness and and came out the other end of that with this incredible gift that he brought to humanity yeah. Yeah. Incredible. And you've 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 certainly, you know, found your boon and, and brought your gift as well through through this ongoing process. So thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. This has been a great pleasure. Oh, for sure. Laura Lee, how can how can our people find you? What would you like to direct them towards in terms of, I guess, um, you know, consuming more of this information or, you know, getting in contact with you even? Yes. Well, that I would love that. Um my greatest joy is is to do my personal work my consultation work and so people can find me at my website and it's ll astrology dash uh com. at least i think that's what it is <laughs> maybe you can just put put it in the in yeah. the chat or whatever oh, it'll, 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 it'll be in, it'll be in the brief um, okay, below wherever good. wherever people are consuming yeah Great. Well, people can just go there and um, to my website, and then there's the information about my astrology work and and uh, the uh, description of the series, which is um, under the tab Aowen Sword. So that just gives a, a description of the series and, and kind of what it's about. And then on the presentations page, you'll find all my uh, the videos in my series and then um, um, the interviews that I've done, like with David and some of the other people along the way. And, and I've been doing some uh, interviews recently uh, as well with uh, uh, David, David Whitehead and Josh Reed on Earth Chronicles. And I'm going to cool. be on with them tomorrow um, talking about some recent events. Um, and yeah, that's, that's kind of where to find me. Amazing. Tell, tell David and Josh we say hello. Totally. <laughs> All right, I will. Okay, you two. Thank you so much. And you, thank you. keep doing your king work. I appreciate you. And guys, thanks for listening. Take care. Smoke and mirrors, I'm seeing through the illusion. 
Waking up in a the time they think you're in a delusion Somebody set the alarms cause they be too busy snoozing I'm in a DeLorean, fast forward in evolution